Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Kids, I do need your help this morning. I warned you about this earlier. Uh, But as we look at the story of Ruth chapter 1, looking at all you kids out there, okay? I need you to listen for two things from me. Can you do that? I need you to listen for all of the bad things that happened to a woman named Naomi. We're going to meet her in the story. I need you to listen for all of the good things that happened to her. And if you go to the back by the sound table, there's actually a coloring sheet back there. On one side, there's a coloring picture. On the other side, there are actually kind of blanks where you can write in the bad things that happened to Naomi and the good things. And so if your parents want you to have one of those and encourage you to grab one this morning. All right, let's jump into Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, one of the reasons that I want us to study the book of Ruth is that we just finished studying the book of Judges. And so as you can see, the events of the book of Ruth happened during the period of the Judges. And so having just been through the book of Judges, we are well positioned right now to study the book of Ruth. Now, as soon as we read that the events of Ruth happened in the days when the Judges ruled, That sets our expectation for what we're going to find in the book of Ruth. So let me ask you a few questions about what you think is going to happen now that you know Ruth happens in the days of the judges, okay? First question is, will we find a faithful Israel or an unfaithful Israel? Which one will we find in the judges? Will we find a faithful Israel or an unfaithful Israel? Was the period of the judges a time when Israel was more faithful to God or less faithful to God? If you've read anything in the judges, you know that Israel was less faithful. Okay, by the end of the book of Judges, the people are doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone is. The period of the judges was one of the darkest in Israel's history. And so right from the start, our expectations of faithfulness are incredibly low. This will probably be another story of God's faithfulness to save his people, even though they are worshiping idols. Okay, second question. During the book of Ruth, does Israel have a king? And the answer is no, they don't. Okay, the period of the judges goes from the death of Joshua to the day when Samuel anoints Saul, or when Saul is installed as the first king of Israel. So during this period, instead of a king, Israel has or is led by all of their judges. Third question. Did Israel's judges help or hurt Israel? The answer is yes, or both, right? Okay. The judges are a mixed bag. Israel's judges consistently helped Israel on the battlefield against their oppressors. And some of the judges were even faithful people, but others, not so much. Okay. And none of the judges, not even, not even the best judges in Israel, were able to deal with Israel's greatest problem, their hearts. Now, after this note 
at the beginning about the judges and about this connection between Ruth and the judges, there's no further mention of the judges in the story of Ruth. None of the judges are named, and in fact, there's not even enough information in the book of Ruth to say for sure like where she fits in the story of the judges. Like, when did she live? Under which judge? We just, we just don't know from the details in the story. One thing we do know, however, is that a famine in Israel during the time of the judges is most likely the consequence of Israel's unfaithfulness. If you remember, God had rescued this people from the land of Egypt, entered into a covenant relationship with them, brought them into the promised land, land, and made promises to them like this. He said, Blessed shall be the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. But God had also promised in the same chapter that if his people were unfaithful to him, this is what would happen. They would be cursed. God said this, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. And so a famine in the time of the judges wouldn't surprise us, given Israel's unfaithfulness during this period. All right, so the story of the the book of Ruth begins with the idea of famine coming, but it's really the story of how one family responds to the famine in Israel. The head of this family is named Elimelech, and his family lives in Bethlehem. His wife's name is Naomi. He has two sons, Malon and Chilion. And when the family, or when the famine comes to Israel, Elimelech takes his family out of Israel to Moab. Now, this, this opening maybe reminds you of other stories in the Bible where people left their land in response to a famine. For instance, in Genesis 12.10, we read, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn. Or in Genesis 26, verse 1, we read, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Okay. Now in Ruth chapter 1, the narrator is moving really fast. Okay. So we don't get all the answers to all the questions that we would like. Questions like, did, did any other families leave Israel to go find food? And, and why did they pick Moab of all places? Did you know anything about Moab? Mo, the Moabites are actually a, a distant family relation of Israel, but the relationship between them is not good. Okay? Even in the book of Judges, there's a, there's a king, Eglon, king of the Moabites. Uh, he oppressed Israel, and he's the one that's assassinated by the left-handed judge Ehud. Okay? But even before that, as, as Israel is making their way still to the promised land, there was a king of Moab, King Balak. He's the one that hired Balaam to try to curse Israel. And then Balak used his own people to seduce Israel into immorality and idolatry. But despite all of this, when there's a, when there's a famine in Israel, Elimelech leaves Israel with his wife and sons to see if they can make a go of it in Moab. Now, what would show more faith? Staying in the land where the Lord had brought him and trusting the Lord to care for his family or leaving this land to live among the wicked where he knew there was food? Okay. The narrator doesn't explicitly condemn his choice, but this decision was, it seems, 
unwise at best, and faithless at worst. All right, verse 3. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, we aren't given the precise timeline of how everything shook down here, but apparently sometime after moving from Israel to Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving his wife and his two sons alone in Moab. Then her sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and they live there for 10 years. But then after that, her her sons die, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. So now we have three women, three widows alone in a society. In, In Israel and Moab, it's the same, where a woman's security in this day and age was through her connection to a man, a husband, a father, or an adult son. But with the death of Elimelech, the death of Malon and Chilion, all of the providers for these women are gone. And so they are in a desperate situation. And in addition to all of this death, there's one more struggle or trial that these women are going through. It seems that both Orpah and Ruth are barren. Remember, Naomi's sons married and then seem to have lived 10 more years in Moab before dying. And so for 10 years after getting married, there were no children. And so it seems that both of these women are barren. Now, before we continue on with the story, I want to ask this question. Were Naomi's sons wrong to marry these Moabite women? Was that something they shouldn't have done? Okay. Well, it is true that because of how Moab treated Israel on their way to the promised land, God had made this declaration. God had said that no Ammonite and no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation or forever. But to enter the assembly of the Lord would be to to gather for worship or for a festival before the Lord. And the situation here is specifically about marriage. So more relevant would be the fact that God had forbidden Israel to intermarry with the people that they were expelling out of the land. Okay? But the But Moab wasn't on that list, okay? Moab wasn't in that category, nor did the Lord list out Moab when he listed out the nations with whom Israel wasn't to marry. And yet the reason that God gave for excluding these nations or forbidding such marriages was his concern that they, the the women of these nations, would turn away Israel's sons from worshiping the Lord. And certainly this was a concern with marrying into Moab, or marrying Moabite women because they were known as the people of Chemosh, a false god. But even this restriction doesn't prevent all marriage for Israel with people among these nations, as we saw when we studied Joshua in the life of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who turned to the Lord, married into Israel, and ended up in the line of the Messiah. So finally, one more time, were these marriages wrong? Okay. Well, you could also look at the fact that their deaths of these two sons These deaths were premature and suspiciously close together, which seems to point to something other than natural causes. And yet, at the end of the day, we just don't have enough information to say conclusively that these marriages were wrong. Maybe Orpah and Ruth had turned from their gods to the Lord before these marriages. We don't know. But given how little we know, these marriages, again, seem concerning or unwise at best and faithless at worst. Now, we are only five verses into the book, and a lot of bad things 
have happened to Naomi. Kids, do you notice any of those yet? Okay, keep listening for the bad things that happen to Naomi. And so in that way, this story of Ruth reminds me of the story of Job, which we read earlier, where right at the beginning, in rapid succession, thing after thing after thing happens, and we read this earlier today. Naomi's situation will be even worse if she stays in Moab, okay? since all of her extended family are back in Bethlehem. There's no Moabite man who's going to take care of old, desperate Naomi. And so it seems like the only choice for Naomi is to go back to Israel. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why? For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Naomi finds herself in this desperate situation, and just as she does, there's this good news that comes from the land of Israel. God has visited his people. The crops are growing again. There's food in Bethlehem. And so for Naomi, this means that she gets to go back to Israel. She gets to go home. And she plans initially to take her two daughters-in-law with her. So we have three widows on the road to Bethlehem. And yet on their journey, apparently Naomi is milling this over in her mind, trying to think about what's going to happen when they get to Bethlehem. And she changes her mind and decides to to, to try to get Orpah and Ruth to go back. Look at verse 8. She says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Okay. So what do you think? Does, does Naomi love her daughters-in-law? Yes or no? It sure seems like it. Okay? Naomi wants nothing but the best for them, and clearly they love her. Okay? In our culture today, there are a lot of mother-in-law jokes, right? Because the relationship between a mother-in-law and her daughter, or daughter-in-law, excuse me, isn't always the greatest. Okay? But that is clearly not the case here. In fact, Naomi's suggestion that these women separate never to see each other again has them all in tears on the side of the road. And her daughters-in-law refuse to leave her. They want to go with her. They love her. Okay. But is it a good idea for Orpah and Ruth to go with Naomi? Is that a wise thing to do? Okay. Naomi doesn't think so. Why is that? Okay. Why does Naomi think that Orpah and Ruth shouldn't go back with her? Look at verse 11. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Okay, so why does Naomi think that it'll be better for Orpah and Ruth if they leave her and stay in Moab? Why is that better? Okay, the answer is this. Because Naomi can't have any more kids. That's the answer. Now, if that seems odd to you, and it should, okay, Naomi's reasoning here reflects an ancient custom and a law called Leverite marriage. Okay, this is a law that God gave in Deuteronomy 25 when he said this. He said, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, if you notice during our New Testament reading today, which Luke read for us, okay, the Sadducees came to Jesus and they asked him a question about this. It was a question about the resurrection and about Leverite marriage. They said, if a woman marries a man who has seven brothers, and the first one dies, so she married, and they don't have any kids, she marries the second one, no kids, he dies, and then so and so on, until she's married all seven, and then they all die, whose wife is she in the resurrection? Okay. And Jesus just shakes his head and gives the answer that you heard this morning. So, so what is this law of Leverite marriage? Okay? So if you've got two brothers, one of them is married, and he dies before he and his wife can have any kids. The living brother is supposed to marry the widow of the dead brother. And when they have children, the firstborn child of that union takes on the name or carries on the line of the dead brother. And any remaining children carry on the line or the name of the living brother. Okay? Now that sounds like, oh, that makes sense. Okay. okay. But simple laws like that leave us with lots of questions. Okay? Because life is rarely that simple. Okay? I mean, hypothetically speaking, let's, let's, let's extrapolate this out. Hypothetically speaking, I don't know, what if, what if both brothers died, okay? Both brothers are married, both brothers died, really close together. Is their mom supposed to have another son? And are the widows supposed to, like, wait for that son to, to grow up and be of marriageable age? What if, what if the mom is too old to have children? And what if her husband is already dead too, hypothetically speaking, right? Because that, that would never happen. Okay? You can see this is exactly the situation we have and the law doesn't answer the question, what do you do in that context? This is what Naomi is talking about when she says, Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She says, girls, look, I've thought more about this, and I don't think you should come, to me with, come with me to Bethlehem. A Leverite marriage is not going to fix this problem that we have. It's not going to save us. Uh, you know, I don't have a husband. I'm too old to have a baby. And you can't wait that long anyway. If, if you did, you'd be too old at that point. Okay, you've, you've got to leave me. Go back to Moab. Get married. Have children. And that is your best chance not to be destitute. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. So there's just, on the side of the road, everybody's crying again and again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah doesn't want to leave her mother-in-law, but reluctantly she does. But Ruth refuses to go. Look at verse 15. And she, Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law, Orpah, has gone back to her people, to her gods. Ruth, return after your sister-in-law. She urges Ruth again, go back to Moab. Orpah has gone to her people, to her gods. Look, it's okay to leave me. Just, just go back. Don't be destitute with me. Verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So now in response to Naomi's persistent urging that Ruth go back to Moab and they be separated forever, Ruth utters one of the most famous statements of personal loyalty ever recorded. 
In fact, it feels so strong that it kind of reminds us of the kind of thing you hear someone say at a wedding or as a wedding vow. Despite Ruth's poor prospects with Naomi, she refuses to leave her. She is ready to give up the idea of a secure future to care for her mother-in-law. And so with, with no guarantee of, uh, of security or really any indication that the she would be secure, in fact, everything to the contrary, with every reason to believe that this will not go well for her, Ruth puts her life in the hands of Israel's God for the sake of her mother-in-law. Ruth lays down her life for Naomi. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Well, when Naomi and Ruth, they walk into Bethlehem, uh, they cause no small stir. More than 10 years have passed since Naomi left with her family of four. And now when she walks back into the city, she doesn't have any of those people she went out with. And so the, the people, the women of the city are like, really, is this, is this really Naomi? Could it be after all this time? In fact, her time away has been so hard that Naomi can't even stand to hear her own name. The name Naomi means something like pleasant. And every time she hears it, she feels like it doesn't fit what God has done to her. She says, don't, don't call me pleasant. Call me, call me bitter. Call me Mara because of how bitterly God has acted toward me. Verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So the chapter opened with a famine, and it concludes at harvest time. And this harvest is going to be a critical part in Ruth's story. Okay, what do we do with Ruth, Ruth chapter 1? What do we do with this story? There are three things, three big things in Ruth chapter 1. Number one, there are all the bad things that happened to Naomi. Number two, there are all the good things that happened to Naomi. And number three, there is Naomi's interpretation of what has happened to her. Okay, so number one, the bad things that have happened. So kids, this is where I need your help. Can one of you tell me one of the bad things that happened to Naomi? Yes, Joel. Okay, Naomi's husband died, right? That's okay. Naomi's husband died. What else? That's one, Isaiah. Both of her sons died. What else? There's two more. Anybody? Maisie? She had to leave her home. There's the last one. There was a, there was a famine. Okay, four things, four bad things that happened to Naomi. There's a famine. She was moved from God's land. Her husband died and her sons died. Okay, now there are two good things, two good things that happened to Naomi. What are they? Yes, right here. Nope. You got it? That's okay. Joel, what is it? What's one of them? Okay. Ruth stayed with her, and what's the other good thing that happened? This is hard to see, maybe. But God provided food back in Bethlehem to take her back to her homeland. Okay? So, food in Israel and Ruth. Those are the good things. All right? Finally, this chapter is about how Naomi interprets these things. And so I want to go back and I want to read with you. I want to read with you the portions of the text 
that reveal to us how she's interpreting what's happening in her life, which is very closely related to Naomi's view of, of God and what he's like. Okay? So let's go back. You can turn to these or just watch on the screen. Verses 8 and 9. Okay? Naomi says to Orpah and Ruth these words. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. That says something about her view of God. Verse 13, she says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 15, she says this to Ruth, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And finally, verses 20 through 21, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? All right, so what is Naomi's interpretation of what has happened to her? There are five things she believes about God. Number one, she believes that God can do good for all people. She says, I hope you guys go back to Moab, find a husband, and I hope he does all kinds of good stuff for you and blesses you. Okay, God can do that, she says. Number two, she believes that God is against her. Number three, she believes that God is not always the best choice. Okay? For Orpah and Ruth, she says, you know what? It would be better for you if you don't come with me, but go back to Moab and back to your gods. That would be better. Okay? Number four, she believes that God is behind all bad things. And number five, she believes that God has done nothing good for her. Nothing good for her. God has brought her back to Bethlehem empty. So we can kind of put it all together this way. Naomi believes that God is behind all the bad things that have happened. He can do good things for all people, but he's done nothing good for Naomi. Therefore, God is against her. And so he's not always the best choice for everyone. Now, you look at that list. Does Naomi get anything right? She does. Okay? She does get some things right. What does she get right? Okay? It is true that God is behind all of the bad things that have happened to Naomi. In other words, all the bad things that have happened to Naomi, they have all been according to God's sovereign plan and by his ultimate control. We read earlier today from the story of Job. What did Job say? What did Job say? When all of his livestock was destroyed and his sons and daughters killed on the same day, he said this, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the narrator, right after that, makes this statement about what Job just said. The narrator says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Like Job, Naomi does not make the mistake of rejecting God's sovereignty when bad things happen. If God is not sovereign over bad things, then we cannot be confident of his power to work all things according to his purpose. If God is not sovereign over bad things, then at any moment, another bad thing could happen and thwart his plan for our good. And so Naomi wisely rejects this option. She is convinced that God is behind all of the bad things that have happened to her. But the problem is, is that from this belief in God's sovereignty over all things, she has a couple wrong conclusions that she draws. Number one, she wrongly believes that God is against her. Two, she wrongly believes that God is not always the best choice. And three, she wrongly believes that God has done nothing good for her. Now, we could go one direction and talk about why those things are wrong, okay? But I don't want to focus today on, on why those conclusions are the wrong thing. I want to focus on why Naomi came to wrong conclusions, okay? So I'm not going to explain why these are, why these are wrong. 
I want to talk about why she made the wrong conclusions. Okay? So number one, why did Naomi reach wrong conclusions about God in this story? Number one, because she did not account for all of the facts that she has. Naomi reached wrong conclusions about God because she did not account for all the facts that she has. In her trials, Naomi does not recognize the good things that God has done for her, both in bringing her back to Bethlehem, because there's food there now, and in Ruth's pledge of selfless loyalty. Do you remember in the story when when Naomi and Ruth walk back into Bethlehem, do you remember uh, what Naomi said about Ruth? Do you remember? Look at it. Verses 19 through 22. What did Naomi say to the people of the town about Ruth? What'd she say? Nothing. Okay, it's not there. She didn't say anything about Ruth. Okay, no one says anything about Ruth. She's completely ignored as as Naomi and Ruth come back into the city. And maybe you can make too much of this silence, but I think most likely in her grief, Naomi has overlooked God's love to her in his gift of a selfless, wonderful, loyal daughter-in-law. Naomi reached wrong conclusions about God because she did not account for all of of the facts that she has. And her struggle is the same as ours. Trials have a way of blinding us to the goodness of God. We have a tendency to forget, to ignore, or to overlook the goodness of God and the kindness of God in our lives. Not to mention all that he's revealed to us about himself, of which Naomi had very, very little compared to what we have today. But second, Naomi reaches wrong conclusions about God because she could not account for all the facts that she doesn't have. Naomi reaches wrong conclusions about God because she could not account for all the facts that she doesn't have. Maybe you listen or, or read the story of Naomi, and it's easy for us to kind of criticize her or say that her reaction is a little extreme to all that's happened. But remember, we know the rest of her story. Okay? She doesn't know that her life is going to be turned into a short story uh, to become one of the most famous and widely read uh, stories of God's kind sovereignty. Okay? But if she knew the rest of her story, like we do, she would immediately forsake all of her wrong conclusions about God. And by the end of this story, she will know that God is not against her. She will know that God is always the best choice for everyone, and she will know that God has done great things for her. And once again, her struggle is the same as ours. There are many in this room for whom recent events make it seem like God is against you. You would say like Naomi, I was, I was full, and then God just emptied me. Or maybe you've given place to other wrong conclusions about God. Like, God does not know about this. He is, he is unaware. Or, or God doesn't control this. He is weak. Or God doesn't care about this. He is cold. Or God has wronged me. He is evil. Or God is punishing me for my sins. He is merciless. Okay. But if you knew the rest of your story, if we knew all that God would do in our story and related to our story beginning to end, if we knew all that, which God does, then we too, like Naomi, would would renounce all of our wrong conclusions about God and agree that our story confirms his love for us and the goodness of all his purposes. Now, I wish 
I wish we knew our stories beginning to end, but we don't. But, but God has given us Naomi's story to show us in, in someone else's story what is true of our story as well. We will never get to live our lives knowing our story from beginning to end. But stories like Naomi's testify to us that we don't need to know our story beginning to end for us to be sure or confident of God's love for us and the goodness of all his purposes. And furthermore, what we already know of our story is more than enough for us to be confident of God's love for us and the goodness of all his purposes. Because we already know that God, just as he did for Naomi, we already know that God put someone in our lives who committed his life to us for, his, for our good, even when he knew that doing so would mean giving up his life to save us. And so though we don't know the end of our story from beginning to end, our confidence of God's love and the goodness of all his purposes can rest solidly, not on knowing everything that's going to happen, it can rest solidly on on what God has already done for us in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and then raising him from the dead. Remember what Paul said. He said this, if God is for us, who can be against us? But how do we know that God is for us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so from this hard and beautiful beginning to the story of Ruth, my prayer today is that we would receive this hope that in the hard days of this life, and there will be many of those, there is always overwhelming reason in Christ to be confident of God's love for us and his kindness and in the goodness of his purposes, both because of what he's already done and revealed but also because of the parts that we are still waiting to learn, the parts that God still only knows. And so we pray that as we trust him through these times, this would all be to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the story of Ruth, really today the story of Naomi, and how you were so kind and gracious to her and giving her someone like Ruth who would lay down her life to save her. And Lord, we are so blessed to know that you have sent your son who laid down his life to save us from, from, from sin, from, the, from its power over us, from its punishment, the death and judgment that we deserved. And so today we pray that you would help us when we face times that make us feel like you have emptied us or make us think things like maybe you're against us. I pray that we would remember what you have already done for us, not, not only in the good things that we've actually seen in our years here, but in the, what you've done for us in Jesus, the greatest demonstration of your love and kindness to us that we will ever know in sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we thank you for this kindness. And we pray you help us to trust you by your grace for the days ahead. As there will be some in this room who face something this week that, that they are not expecting. I pray that their first response would be to trust you and to be encouraged that you are for them in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.